0: Uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, um, to this uh, special lecture, The Challenge of Richness, Rethinking the Giant of Poverty. Um, I'm Mike Savage. I'm Professor of Sociology here at the LSE. I'm also a co-director of the International Inequalities Institute. And it's great to see so many of you here. I want to tell you straight away, please, if you've got a phone or an iPad or some device, if you can log on to that um, web address, uh, then we're going to be asking you to do a quiz um, in a couple of minutes' time. So uh, it's that po- uh, polevcop.com. So let me introduce the panel and I'll say a few words about tonight's um, event. Um, our panel is composed of people who've thought about the issue of richness, uh, wealth, and it's the challenges that poses for society today. So on my left hand side is Tanya Burkhardt who's director of the Center for the Analysis of Social Exclusion, or CASE, um, and is Associate Professor in the Department of Social Policy here. Um, Amy Fenwick um, is an artist uh, working in London who's interested in challenges of richness and social and cultural issues. Sam Freeman is Associate Professor in the Department of Sociology at the LSE. And Luna Glucksberg, on my right hand side, is an urban anthropologist based in the LSE's International Inequalities Institute. OK, so let me begin by just saying that throughout the evening, we want to hear from you. We're going to ask you a question at the beginning. Um, and then we're going to take the same question at the end and see if you, any of you changed your mind, having heard uh, our speakers in the debate. Um, you may already have used this uh, device earlier parts of the um, week. Um, but if not, it'll, I'll, I'll explain it in a minute. Also, for those of you using Twitter, the hashtag is LSEbeverage. And, okay, so let me just, to start the evening, to frame the evening, um, I want to introduce the person whose idea it was and who um, has recently completed a PhD Mm -hmm. in the Department of Sociology at the LSE precisely on the issue of uh, richness and the questions that richness poses for society today. So I'll ask Katharina Heck to say a few words to start us off.
1: Thank you, Mike. I'm delighted to be here tonight to provide a brief introduction to the event. In his 1942 report, Sir William Beveridge argued that the government should focus on fighting the five giant evils of want, disease, ignorance, squalor and idleness. The state, he argued, should ensure that there was an acceptable minimum standard of living in Britain, below which nobody fell in order to tackle want or poverty. Seventy-five years on since his report, should we think about a maximum? Given that the economic and political power of the richest in our society has increased, should we think about richness as a social problem, as we do with poverty? Economists, most notably Sir Anthony Atkinson, have brought about a turning of the tables in the social sciences. With their analysis of the share that accrued to the richest 1%. Sociologists, including our chair, Professor Mike Savage, have led the way for an analysis of a wealth elite and about class formation at the top of the distribution. And in my own work, in my research on how the top 1% understand economic inequality as measured by top income and wealth shares. I found, perhaps unsurprisingly, that about two-thirds of my participants thought um, that we should not be thinking about how much the richest 1% uh, should earn or own. Instead, some argued, we should focus on poverty, a minimum living standard instead. However, a significant minority of, of about a third of participants expressed concern for the rising share of the top 1% in terms of income and wealth and argued that these shares should be lower. Now as citizens and in the social science, should we think about and conceptualize richness as a social problem? And as a problem that may be interconnected with poverty as well as with whiteness and masculinity? Renowned philosopher, Professor Ingrid Robbins defends limitarianism. The view that it is morally objectionable to be rich, that it is not morally permissible to earn more, to have more resources than are needed to fully flourish in life. She argues that this is because richness threatens the idea of political equality, because the rich can translate money into political power, and because of unmet urgent needs, uh, for example, um, global poverty, but also climate change. In this vein, I'm really excited to be here tonight and to hear the discussion, and can't wait to hear the contributions of our speakers and our chair, all of whom inspire our thinking about the issue of richness.
0: Okay, so we're now going to turn to the poll, which I think Emma will just pick up on the uh, screen. Um, And so you all have this simple question to answer. Which is the bigger social problem, uh, poverty or richness? So poverty is the classic kind of beverage you know, issue. Uh, the issue we're posing today is actually is richness in the context of today's society actually the bigger the bigger social problem. So if you can log into your devices, whatever they might be, um, and um, give you answer to that question, I'll give you just one minute to do that. Okay. I'm looking at Emma at the back. Yes, finger, okay, thumb up. Did we get the results? Okay, right. 63% saying uh, poverty, the 37% saying richness. So we're gonna ask the same question at nine o'clock, see how many of you have shifted, if any of you. Um, So we've got four panelists who will all be trying to persuade you that actually it's richness, which is the bigger problem, starting with Tanya.
2: Okay. Uh, Well, I might not try and persuade you that it's necessarily the bigger problem, but certainly that it's a a problem as well. So thanks very much for inviting me to be uh, part of the discussion tonight, and Catherine has given an excellent introduction. And one of the things that I think her remarks uh, drew attention to is that there are both intrinsic and instrumental reasons why we might be concerned about riches. So intrinsic reasons relate to accounts of social justice and the idea that it's simply unjust uh, if there is too wide an in, uh, uh, inequality between rich and poor within a, within a given society. But it's the, actually the instrumental grounds that I want to focus my remarks on. And instrumental grounds are where we think that richness gives rise to other problems and makes it more difficult for society to achieve other goals uh, that we want to achieve. Those goals might include environmental sustainability. And Ian Goff's work, I think, has been very interesting, his book Heat, Uh, greed and human need drawing attention to the incompatibility between the current distribution of resources and achieving a pathway to uh, climate sustainability so that's an instrumental reason for being concerned about riches. Uh, But there's also an instrumental reason uh, that we may be concerned about riches that relates to whether inequality itself makes it more difficult to address the social problem of poverty. And this has been the subject of a programme of research in the Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion, led by John Hills and Abigail McKnight, really homing in on the relationship between inequality and poverty. Now, you'll be familiar with the fact that there is a long-standing argument about whether inequality may not, in fact, be helpful for economic growth, providing incentives uh, to enlarge the total size of the cake, if you like and through that mechanism, potentially be helpful in reducing poverty, providing the means through which poverty can be uh, tackled. And um, through a thorough review of the empirical evidence of the relationship between uh, inequality and poverty, what the uh, programme that we've been involved in has demonstrated is that across different periods of time, across different OECD countries, there is a strong relationship between high inequality and high poverty. And that holds for a range of different measures of inequality and a range of different measures of poverty. So it doesn't seem as if the uh, effects of inequality are to reduce poverty. It seems as if there's an association between the two. Having said that, it's not simply mechanical. So we can find periods, we can find particular countries where that relationship doesn't hold, for example, a period when inequality is continuing to rise but relative poverty is falling. That was the case in the UK between the 1990s, late 1990s and about 2007, the the financial crisis. So how can it be then that there is not a a, a direct relationship between the two, not not an inevitable relationship between the two? And I think an important part of the answer is that policy matters. One can intervene in the effect of riches on poverty, and the range of policy instruments at our disposal can make uh, that difference between how that relationship plays out in practice at a particular time. But how are we to create the policy space for thinking about those instruments? Redistribution is immensely unpopular. So despite the fact that around three quarters of the British public think that there's a too wide a gap between the rich and poor, Uh, Nevertheless, policies that redistribute are extremely unpopular. How do we create the political policy space for more discussion about the way that riches can limit poverty? One of the ways in which I think we can move that agenda forward is by thinking about what we might mean by a riches line. So you're all familiar with the idea of a poverty line, a threshold below which we consider people not to have sufficient means uh, to live a decent life. But what about a riches line, a line above which it's reasonable to expect people to pay more towards public services and public goods? We don't have a social consensus around that, and research that we're hoping to get underway is going to try and explore the feasibility of establishing a social consensus around what a riches line might be through deliberative workshops with members of the general public, asking both people with modest means and people who are wealthier what they think about uh, where a riches line might be. Now it may well be that we find there is no social consensus around that and that indeed could itself be part of the challenge of richness um, which is the uh, title for this event. The challenge of richness may turn out to be that nobody is really willing to recognise their own privilege. That nobody is willing to say, yeah I'm rich, I'm one of the people uh, who you need to take more of. So we'll see uh, how how that research pans out. Um, But I think it's important to try and open up new spaces for discussion of the way that policy can intervene to affect that relationship between inequality and poverty.
0: Thanks, Thanks, Tanya. And now immediately I'm going to move on to Amy, um, who's going to be showing us some visuals, I think.
3: Okay. So um, I'm going to introduce the Alternative School of Economics, which is um, my collaborative um, project with another artist. First, because I think it's relevant to um, to the discussion in terms of how I've been thinking about richness. So um, the Alternative School of Economics, or the ASE, is an artwork and a way of working. It links artist practice with self-education as a way to study economics, creating a framework for investigating political, social, and cultural issues. We began it in 2012 and it was in part response to the banking crisis um, in which economics dominated political and media discourse and the inevitable outcome we were told was austerity so from this starting point um, and and with our interest in self-education we saw a demand upon the general public to redefine economics on their own terms to study it through the lens of day-to-day reality and personal experience and to rethink Uh, what the study of economics is, so that it's not just a scientific study of money and finance, but a subject that expands into the study of things like politics, geography, sociology, social relations. Um, The alternative school of economics sets uh, out to learn together, collaboratively, and in a non-hierarchical way. It's a social practice, working with people, questioning ideas through conversations and relationships. Um, Conceptually, it's also a statement that people who are not economists can set up an alternative school to reclaim economics as a social, everyday tool. So, yes, I think richness is a social problem. Richness is not something separate from life, from society. It is not something out of our control, like the way economists and others speak of the financial uh, markets. Richness that we're talking about is a richness connected to society's understanding of accumulative wealth. It's not the richness attributed to the wonders of the world. It's money, but to money. It's therefore, it's a social construct. Richness is about how the idea of wealth is presented and perceived and produced by society. Richness can only exist in relation to poorness. You cannot have one without the other. Richness is inherently connected with poverty and is therefore also interconnected with race, gender and class. I think it's useful to conceptualize richness as a social problem because it allows us to see more clearly that solving the problem is not only a monetary issue, but a social one. So it's not about only raising taxes for the rich or stopping bonuses, it's about challenging the concept of wealth in society and the mechanisms that support that concept. (coughs) So for example, challenging the notion of progress, which is still linked to capitalist mode of production, which is becoming dangerously out of date because of climate change. Challenging the way richness and the rich are portrayed and celebrated. How richness is linked to aspiration, success, and is supported by the meritocratic culture that's present in our education systems. Our understanding of wealth needs to be rethought. We need to create a new meaning of wealth based on other values. These ideas are informed by a project that we made called the Rich as a Minority Group, which was an active research project with GCSE sociology students from a school in Newham. Over four months, we worked with students and teachers investigating and gathering material about wealth, class and um, social and economic inequality. Together, we unpicked our complex re- relationship to an understanding of the rich. This is a slide from the, one of the workshops. The title is it comes from an article by Anne Simpson that in this <coughs> teacher's journal from 1984, in which she states, in order to understand poverty and deprivation amongst groups at local, national and international levels, it is necessary to examine wealth and privilege. In order to understand powerlessness in some groups, it is important to focus on the ways in which power is maintained by others. For us, this proposition resonated with the current economic inequalities and activating the study in a state secondary school in East London aimed to reevaluate questions of wealth and power in society now. We did lots of different things, um, but one of the main activities was that we organised two field trips, sociological, these are sociology students, field trips, in which the students visited and interviewed a wealthy individual and an economist. That, by the way, isn't the wealthy individual, that's just somebody else. Um, <laughs> we, so we filmed this whole process <laughs> and made a documentary. So I'll just finish with something that happened near the end of us filming uh, one, of the, one of the class, a group of students who were gathering material about Mayfair, which is where the wealthy individual was when we interviewed them. Um, They were asked to move on as they were standing outside a particular designer shop. And the cameraman says to the students that they don't have to move, it's just because he's filming. But it produced a conversation, an insightful reflection from the students, who speak of how they feel uncomfortable in this area, that this area is not for them, that they're getting funny looks, they realise they don't belong. So this moment speaks of the divide that wealth creates, that this divide is based on how much money, yes, they have or haven't got, but it's also about their race, their age, their status as British citizens, their understanding of their own class and how this is performed in public. It reveals wealth's exclusivity. It's a club which many people do not belong. This exclusivity is extraordinarily powerful as it fuels aspiration. What I'm interested in is how we might create a space in which wealth is not dominant, is not aspirational.
0: Thank you, Amy. And now we're going to go on to Luna.
4: Thank you, Amy. Now, the work I want to discuss tonight is something I do with very wealthy families. And when I say very wealthy, I mean the kind of families that can afford to have family offices. Although it's hard to give a precise estimate of their wealth, more or less, in order to have a family office, a family needs to have a net worth of between, well, at least $100 Uh, US dollars, but usually on average around 250 million and then up into the billions. Mm. Family offices are entities that exist to look after both the capital and the family. They make sure that assets and investments are managed in the best possible way, but also that the families themselves function as uh, well as possible, as they should, ideally avoiding rivalries, splits and expensive divorces. One of the key strategic functions of family offices is succession and strat- succession strategy and tax planning. This means ensuring that capital is transferred smoothly to the next generation, minimizing taxation, inflation, and any other risks. Now, why should we care about this? Why should the activities of private families be a concern of ours? Now, the sums we're talking about sit in very conservative estimates at around 58 trillion dollars. This is the amount of wealth that will be transferred to the next generation of elites in the next few years. That's in the US alone and this is the last, the latest aggregate data that I could find and it's from 2014 so it could well be more by now. Now these transitions are managed very carefully by the offices who are responsible for building and managing complex structures which usually um, rotate around around, uh, foundations and trusts. These, These structures are usually based and usually come up in the news with the occasional scandals around the Panama Papers or the Paradise Papers more recently. These practices are for the most part perfectly legal and they never seem to stay in the news for long and they certainly don't excite people as much as benefit fraud does. Now the fact that families, these practices that private families take part in have huge consequences for the rest of us. For them in terms of the accumulation of wealth through the generations and for us in terms of lack of redistribution through taxation for society. They are a key part of what drives inequality from the top. This is why I believe it's perfectly reasonable to talk about them. And after all, the state feels perfectly entitled to discuss the living arrangements of people who apply for benefits in great, even intimate, detail. Now, what's interesting, however, is when you talk with these families and their advisors, their motivations and framings that they use... What's interesting is the motivation and framings they use to talk about their actions. Because to put it simply, all they say is that they're just looking after their families. The rationale is that the wealth they have inherited does not really belong to them, not as such. They're just looking after it for the next generation, for a few years. And their job is to look after it, ideally grow it, and then pass it on. But there is a key thing to remember here. If an individual inherits, let's say, 100 million, and has three children, each one of those child would at the very most inherit 33 million. So one third in one generation. In a few generations that wealth will dissipate. That is what they fear. They don't want their children to have less than they did and they don't want them to fall behind and slip down a curve they know to be very, very steep. And they're right. Inequality within the 1% is higher than inequality in all the rest of society combined. That fall would be very steep and probably scary. All they're doing by growing and shielding their wealth is therefore looking after their families. That way of thinking is not in fact uncommon. The narrative that one has to look after one's own and protect them is deeply ingrained in our society. Just think for example at the uproar and outrage generated by any and all attempts to increase inheritance tax even if the great majority of the population would not only not be hurt but actually benefit from such policies so of course it's understandable to want to care for your children but the current economic situation means that more and more people literally do not have enough to feed themselves or house themselves or their children (coughs) hence the rising food banks, homelessness and even suicides driven by sanctions and cuts (coughs) fear And risk of falling looks very different if you're very wealthy than if you're not. So maybe it would make more sense to shift away from a narrative that focuses on fear and therefore protecting one's family privately and start thinking again instead about a society that is not risky, a society where we have enough resources to create a public social net (coughs) as opposed to a private family-based one a net that is there to catch us all if we fall, in short, a more equal society. But of course, in order to do that, we need the resources to pay for it, and a legislative system determined to stop the tax avoidance practices of the very wealthy.
0: Thank you, Luna. And then finally, um, my colleague Sam on the left here. Okay. Um so it's really interesting to
5: hear everyone's thoughts so far. Um, I'm going to look at richness in a, in a slightly different way, uh, in terms of those who um, have reached the most elite positions in society um, and therefore earn the highest incomes. And I suppose my interests here lie in thinking about really how fair the processes are that lead to people's recruitment to these sorts of positions, positions that go on in most cases to make them uh, extremely rich. So, specifically working with Aaron Reeves here at the LSE, um, we've looked at the role of Britain's elite male-only private schools, colloquially known as public schools, in propelling their old boys into elite positions. To do this, we were lucky enough uh, to get the entire 120-year back catalogue of Who's Who, a unique dictionary of the British elite, um, which crucially has details of the individual school attended by each entrant. Now, we were particularly interested in the power of nine schools in particular, the Clarendon schools, okay, which include Eton, Harrow, St Paul's, Westminster, and whose alumni make up about 0.1% of the UK population, but who have together educated a somewhat staggering 36 Prime Ministers, 67% of all to be elected in this country. Now, in this way, these schools have long been thought of as very influential, But at the same time, their sort of propulsive power has never actually been scrutinised in any robust or systematic way. So this is what we set out to do, and what we found, I think, was really quite striking. Now, in one sense, we did find that these schools um, and their power has declined somewhat over time. But at the same time, they remain extraordinarily powerful channels of elite recruitment. Even today, the alumni of nine Clarendon schools remain 94 times more likely to reach the British elite than those attending any other school. I think a pretty incredible figure. Now the main reason I would link this to our discussion tonight is really that it's overwhelmingly richness uh, that governs who can attend one of these schools in the first place, okay? The average annual fees at one of these schools are approximately 35,000 pounds a year. So for me, one of the reasons richness is such a pressing contemporary problem is that our society provides very clear-cut avenues through elite private schools or inheritance, as Luna talked about, for that richness to then be passed on to one's children to ensure they have all kinds of unfair starting advantages. Advantages that, to me anyway, stand in complete contradiction to the sort of meritocratic ideal subscribed to by many people and which our Prime Minister at least rhetorically, anyway, uh, tells us she is passionately devoted to upholding. Many like her would argue that richness is perfectly acceptable as long as everyone has an equal chance to accumulate it, as long as there is equality of opportunity. But my point is that whether you agree with that starting point or not, and I don't personally, these kinds of findings make a real mockery of equality of opportunity. So I would argue that if we really want to start making good on even that fairly limited promise, we need to start thinking urgently uh, about particularly the intergenerational transmission of richness, and perhaps even, dare I say it, the abolishment of hallowed institutions
0: like Eton. Thank you. Okay, before um, opening it up to the floor, I'll just make a few observations um, and try and draw some of the threads as I see them between some of the panelists, and, um, and I think it's, it's not, uh, not surprising we're talking about the issue of richness today. Uh, uh, the work of so many economists has shown that, you know, in many nations and certainly in the UK, there's been this very big shift of both income and wealth towards the top few percentile, top you know, top 10%, top 5%, top 1%, top, top 0.1%. <laughs> um, now I'm a sociologist, um, so in a way, I mean, I, 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 those uh, kinds of data. In the background of what interests me, but I think one of the themes coming out of the panel isn't just to debate the kind of economics of inequality, and there's obviously a debate to be had about, you know, do we need incentives and uh, how does human capital work and all these things, but it's the issue of the kind of the social dysfunctionality of a society in which you have very high levels of um, income and wealth inequality, and in particular, uh, the people at the top are so, so far ahead. I'll just pull out a few themes which I think. Um, to me, uh, speak to the kind of the issues we face and the challenges we face. One of them, which which Katharina Hecht herself has studied really brilliantly in her PhD, Katerina's PhD was a study of super wealthy, high income earners in London, and the issue she 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 has found out is that for most of those people, um, the world is a market. The public sector doesn't exist. You assume you'll be sending your kids to private school. You assume you, everything is privatised. When you've got a society in which a significant proportion of people have such an arm's-length relationship with the public sector, what does it mean in terms of their engagement in society? Um, and historically, even wealthy people had a relationship with the state, but today, significant proportions of super wealthy people, um, arguably, don't have that in the same way. And what, does that, what kind of issues does that pose for our social cohesion? Then the issue which we we heard from from all the speakers, um, particularly Luna and Sam perhaps, is the issue of meritocracy. Because I think um, it's been a a, a standard way of defending inequality in in most liberal nations is to say, well, yes, there is inequality, but social mobility allows people who work hard with the right talents to to make it. So we can defend inequality on that um, basis. But this meritocracy pathway, Insofar as it ever existed, and there's a debate about that, but actually the evidence shows that there is a signif- there has been sig- a significant amount of upward mobility in most uh, Western societies, but that is being challenged by what is happening now. And certainly the research which has been done by by Sam Maloon is showing a very high degree of elite reproduction at the very top. So you know you can be up and by a well short way, but very few, despite you know despite the occasional media stories, very few people make it all the way from bottom to top. And as the top pulls away, it's just so much further to get from the bottom to the top. And once we start believing, once we start losing belief in meritocracy, then uh, in a way, uh, what of our underpinning beliefs begins to crumble? And where does that <coughs> leave issues of legitimacy and such like? And this poses, is, at this is least my last observation, which I think I'm very interested in Tanya's observations about this richness line and also the issue about you know, how, in in the world of art, we're thinking about equi- how people raise issues of inequality, which is the kind of um, it, you know, it's, it's the kind of extent to which we are experiencing this kind of populist backlash concern about richness, um, which is not just to do with the charisma of Donald Trump or, or Nigel Farage, and the amazing figures as they are. It is actually embedded, I think, in these concerns which are popping out in all sorts of walks of cultural life. So thinking about questions of do we need to have a public discussion about richness and actually have, a, have an idea of these people are rich and what uh, challenges that might pose this is perhaps a, an important device for our society. Okay, I've taken a long time. Um, so we have about uh, 20 minutes or so for discussion and we'll take a few questions and then ask for some responses. Okay, yeah, um, man in the back there. Thank you. It's a very interesting um, discussion. I enjoyed the presentations. But there's one thing that is not entirely missing, but is kind of the edge of the discussion, which is, it seems obvious to me and probably to everybody here, that great wealth and high income convey power, not just intergenerationally, but in it itself. It's, uh, it enables people to buy, I don't need to go into detail about it, but you know, lobbying, um, Connections, a whole range of ways in which it creates power, and it seems to me that the the worst aspect of having the super rich pulling away is the extent to which they now control everything um, that they want to. Thank you. Good point. Okay, take a few more questions, then we'll ask the speakers to to respond. Any? Yes, one over here.
1: What? Me, what role do you see uh, among the? super-rich or hyper-rich that uh, um, Luna Glucksberg uh, talked about um, as to um, the elites or this elite's attitude towards philanthropy. Has this changed or um, how do they reconcile the idea of philanthropy uh, with um, their idea of passing wealth through generations?
0: Okay, one more, Um, woman up there, yes, in the Queen.
4: So there was a
3: discussion about how kind of a withdrawal from um, from state involvement with the elites or uh, using state benefits for the elites, but it seems to me that they're still playing the system for their benefits, whether it's through super PACs or certain... um, involvement so how should we um discuss and analyze the use of um the their benefits whether it's social economic cultural capital and how they convey that to uh maintain their elite positions
0: okay great thank you okay throw it open to the panel who wants to, to get in Sam? yeah
5: <coughs> yeah i'll just uh i'll have a go at the, the one about power <coughs> i think that's cru- i think it's crucial and um one of the reasons why we wanted to look at a source like Who's Who, rather than um, this sort of economic threshold um, sense of, of of sort of economic definitions of, of elites, um, is precisely because you know not all uh, forms of capital are economic, um, and elites' sort of disproportionate access to those resources can be from various different domains and. Um, the only thing I would sort of say on that point is, despite what I said about the issues of elite reproduction, um, I suppose what, so. one of the things that, that people often talk about in terms of elites is, is that where they are all drawn from very homogenous backgrounds, that may have particular implications for the exercise of power in terms of a common set of economic interests and, and further sorts of interests. Um, and I suppose what, one thing that comes out of our study is that perhaps that idea whilst I think it's very powerful in people's imagination isn't really borne out in our data in terms of these these elite private schools they certainly your relative chances of um, of, of being sent to the elite are incredibly high but you there is not one sort of uh, coherent uh, dominant elite group that sort of notion of the establishment um, as being this sort of um, incredibly sort of coherent grouping isn't really borne out in in, in our data anyway
2: Anybody? Yeah, Tanya. Well, I was going to say, just an observation really that i think we're all doing quite a good job of locating the challenge of richness outside this room so it's the top one percent it's the elite it's the super powerful and they're probably not in in the room um, but actually the top half of the income distribution is also Part of the problem. Um, in, in our analysis, there's actually a stronger relationship between changes in inequality between the 90th and the 50th percentile, so the top part of the distribution but not the very top, and changes in, in poverty, so increases in inequality in that part of the distribution and, and increases in poverty, than there is in, in terms of changes in the top 1%, that the income share of the top 1%. And changes in poverty. Now, there may be other very good reasons to be concerned about what's going on at the very top, but in terms of the um, opening question about the relationship between uh, the social problem of richness and the social problem of poverty, I think we shouldn't get drawn too much uh, away from thinking about the much larger share of the population who were just <coughs> in the top half uh, rather than <coughs> not right at the very top. Yeah, problem,
4: Uh, I'll take the one on uh, philanthropy and I'll try and say something to that. I think philanthropy is certainly seen in very positive terms. It's it's the most um, easy thing to agree on, that philanthropy is a good thing. And the idea of helping the poor, certainly seen as noblesse, oblige, or almost like competitive philanthropy, is certainly there and positive. Now, the new buzzword is impact investment. That's the thing that especially what are called the next gen, as in the new generations of wealthy people are all buying into. That's the thing that is um, apparently making a difference. Whether impact investment is in fact just a different variation on philanthropy or not, the jury's out on that. And especially there are very serious problems with how this impact is measured. There are no data um, to speak of that are robust enough to assess it for now. Um, Having said all this, the kind of work I do is ethnographic, ethnographic and requires people to speak to me. And I make a point of always saying that I'm not just from the LSE but from the International Inequalities Institute. And I would have thought that for a lot of people, that would put them off from speaking to me. And I accept that as an initial thing. They have every right to decide they don't want to speak to someone on the basis of where I come from. But I've actually found a lot of people are prepared to talk about it. So there are quite a lot of people who are concerned with inequality who are prepared to talk, of course, anonymously. Um, But my sense is that it's shifting and more and more people are concerned in real substantive terms with what's happening globally with inequality.
3: I was just thinking as you were talking about philanthropy, the the wealthy individual that one of the uh, groups of students interviewed was um, a philanthropist. We were talking earlier about... How when, before we came on about how there's sort of not a word for richness and we found it very difficult to think a way of describing this person I'm saying wealthy individual sometimes I said he's a ph- philanthropist it was kind of tricky the whole thing was very tricky just getting somebody to be interviewed and, um, by a bunch of students um, and for them to understand what that situation was and that they were being interviewed because of their wealth essentially and I think part of it we did have to sort of use for the philanthropy bit as a way to get them to agree it was like here's some students from the east end of london give them some of your knowledge of your success uh, essentially that's how we managed to get it to happen and i think there's something about the relationship between the the rich and the not that all these students were poor at all but you know the the very very rich and the not so rich um, and, and how they can even come together on, in the same space, and often philanthropy is, is kind of thought of the way of doing that. But actually, I don't know how successful it is, and it's sort of cringe-making as well.
6: <laughs>
0: okay, we've got some time for some more <laughs> questions. There's a guy there in the white t-shirt, uh, 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 halfway up.
6: <clears throat> Hello, thank you very much for the speeches. Very interesting to hear all of them. Well, one question I have, have you seen from all, all this research that you've done, there is any speci- uh, specific triggers that might make this very, very well uh, individuals? Uh, really try to make a change, a drastic change in their lives beyond the 1% philanthropy or donating something here, something there, but any special trigger that might happen or might occur even for the next, uh, for the near future, that really makes it, ch- they change the way they see richness and stop just going for more and more and more and really abdicate luxury and all those unnecessary things and so on. Please, thank you very much. There's a
0: woman
1: Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask, what responsibility do you think have institutions like the LSE got to create opportunities for outside outside that kind of Clarendon set of students um, to create a fairer playing field? Because field? I guess, uh, having been a former LSE student, I think it's a um, fair kind of stomping ground for this challenge of richness.
0: Good point. <laughs> uh, uh, one more. Guess at the front here.
6: Uh, Thank you very much. I just want to add to the comment about Oxbridge, actually, because the root of most poverty in the UK and in the Commonwealth and a lot of the world comes from Oxbridge, who is systematically uh, part of the institution of creating a world where education is only given to the rich and their choice of people. Uh, I think it's very important to understand that ending Oxbridge forever and introducing a university system where everybody is included and paid for by the government, a government owned by the people, would then solve all the poverty that we're talking about in this world in that one action alone. So a collective, a collective effort to change the real horror is the only way to deal with t- the horrors that we're facing today and tomorrow. and We'll end it forever. I guarantee you
0: that. Starving, Thank okay. you. Bye. He's going to respond to that. I was <laughs> thinking that. I'm not. <laughs> I mean, can I, can, I, can I say a few words, actually? Because it also ties into the question about the LSE and, yes. and also philanthropy. Um, because I think it is, it is I mean, yes, it, it, by all metrics, LSE is a very elite institution. I mean, LSE graduates are amongst the best paid when they go to, get out to work, compared to graduates from most other, pretty much any other UK university. Uh, we have a responsibility, is how I see it at the LSE. LSE has a very proud tradition of being critical and uh, thinking critically about the world and has a great tradition of uh, um, teaching students to be radical and, and questioning. And I actually think, I mean, I, I never worked at Oxford and Cambridge, so I can't compare, I, for minute, but, but from what I know of those institutions, they are much more hidebound and much more based upon in sense, elite reproduction in the kind of sense which Sal was talking about it. Um, <clears throat> I think I see the LSE as, as a different kind of institution, a, more, a metropolitan institution, which is a much more questioning one. Doesn't, it's not to say we don't have any relationship to that more elite world, <coughs> but one thing which I am very proud of as director of the International Inequalities Institute is that we have we are currently working with a very large um, investment by Atlantic Philanthropies, uh, 65 million pounds to develop a kind of cadre of activists and leaders to challenge inequality. <coughs> so this is the largest ever uh, donation to LSC. So it very much raises the issue about how how do we relate to the world of philanthropy? Mm. So this is money. Uh, ultimately gathered by a man called Chuck Feeney. he was a very successful businessman and he, and he made his money from duty free duty free shops at airports um, and he decided to create this foundation it was a very radical view he didn't believe actually in, in doing what Luna says and, and give it to your kids. He believed actually eight billion power eight billion dollars should actually be spent for social betterment and I mean I've never had any experience of this kind of world of philanthropy until I came to the LSE a few years ago, but I think we do have to take this seriously. I think it, and we do need to think about how we actually can get people of that ilk who don't necessarily think money is about, certainly about um, using it for your own benefit and think about how we can kind of work with that group critically. But I have to say, we have our first cohort of fellows, a few of them in this room, I think, um, and actually thinking about how that fellowship programme can work to bring about social change. is something we still have to work about, so have to think about. So I think broadening out our repertoire of educational, think about access issues, is absolutely crucial that we that we do this at the NSC. I think we have, a, actually, for an institution of, of our type, a fairly good record, but we need to we need to do more. Okay, that's my, that's my bit. Sam? Um, so.
5: Yeah, I just thought I'd address the question about uh, triggers, actually, um, which I think is a good question. I mean, I might be naive, but um, I do think that uh, in my experience, and I've recently been um, on another project looking at this idea of a class ceiling and in specifically looking, um, working with very big uh, organisations um, doing research on the sort of power that your class background has in shaping your career outcomes. And in the process of doing that research, I've been gone into the boardrooms of these companies to report back the findings. And one of the things that I think is interesting is that if you can dislodge that the idea that these people in very um, senior positions have, that, that they themselves and the organisations that they f- see over aren't meritocratic, I think, and, you, can, and you, you have to do that in a specific way, and often you have to use the language of statistics, um, because it's what they trust and what they believe in, but if you can actually really use robust evidence that dislodges that idea, and I think what's interesting is you know, having interviewed a lot of these people, it, I think these people generally do very much believe that their own trajectories have been based on meritocracy, and they do believe in that idea. And so actually, you know, in the case that I was working in, we were showing them evidence that there are differences in pay, even when you account for every type of meritocratic difference that that organisation would like to throw at that inequality. And you can see people's faces changing, and you can see the possibility that they may then in, you know, implement change. So it may be naive, but I, I do think that that's, in a way, the, the, the one of the best ways to trigger change, is by undermining that very cherished idea.
2: I was just going to come back on the point about universities. I think you make a very powerful point about the way in which elite higher education is is part of the problem. Um, But I think in a sense we can't just stop by thinking about higher education. Sam's work has uh, illustrated the importance of schools, and whether that's because of going to a private school or whether it's going to a better performing state school, Mm. which people are buying themselves into through other means, Mm. through through the housing market. Uh, living in an area within a catchment that has got a better state school. And in fact, one can trace it right the way back to um, access to preschool and nursery education. So, um, Kitty Stewart and Tammy Campbell have done research that's looking at uh, the entry into and take up of preschool and nursery education, which is again strongly um, patterned by socioeconomic background. So I think right through the education system, not just <coughs> right at the end point, um, we need to look at those those questions of
0: access. Yeah, happy to. Okay, I think we got time for one more round of questions today. Quick, I think you were first. Yeah. Kind of for Sam, but I guess for the rest of the panel as well. Um, I want to know what kind of positive narrative um, you want to produce to kind of getting people on board with kind of removing the idea of like the Clarendon schools but also public schools in general Um, because I think personally the kind of negative message isn't going to be enough to persuade them to kind of get rid of this and um, I think there should be more done to promoting the benefit of not just wider society but actually to the individuals that attend these institutions and from that and kind of yeah. Just what's your opinion in creating this kind of narrative, really? Okay, um, there's a guy there on the left-hand side.
4: Hello.
3: Um, Two points. Uh, One, um, the causes of wealth and the mechanisms and ripple effects throughout society. Is one question. Second one, um, you're not being very explicit about the problems that relate specifically to wealth. It could be argued that it's a general power problem or a general network problem. What specific problems do you see as relevant to wealth?
0: Yeah. Okay, and there's a guy at the back with his hand right up. Middle of the, middle of the back way almost.
5: Uh, hi, yeah. thanks for the very interesting uh, presentations. I just wanted to uh, ask a question, particularly with the, the kind of vote that we're having at the end between poverty and uh, richness, in particularly looking at that distinction that was made between Uh, an intrinsic bad and an instrumental bad so a lot of the stuff that was discussed today uh, today is about like what is instrumentally bad and i'm just trying to understand uh is what's bad about richness is that it just leads to more poverty or is it something
0: more and above that okay um i think we should yes we we should we should get the last uh, round of um uh, interventions
2: yep Um, So I I was trying to make the case that I think that's one of the grounds of concern for uh, being concerned about richness is is the mechanism that links high inequality to uh, it being more difficult to tackle poverty Um, and there are a number of different ways in which that that may feed through. Some of them are through the political mechanism that others have, have spoken about, the concentration of political power. Um, but some of them are through, through economic means, um, through uh, cultural um, mechanisms and so on. So there's a whole different range of ways in which I think uh, there is a link between, between richness and, and making it more difficult to, to address poverty. Uh, but then I think there are quite other uh, grounds of concern. Um, so we also mentioned briefly at the beginning that the environmental sustainability concern, uh, that it, it, is, it seems likely, plausible that the current distribution of resources is incompatible with achieving a pathway to climate sustainability, um, and concerns around um, the impact on democracy, so that's the argument um, that Katerina referred to, that Ingrid Robbins has made, uh, that there's just an incompatibility between uh, the levels of inequality that we currently see and a well-functioning democracy. So th- those are all bracketed as instrumental reasons, uh, for grounds of concern, uh, but then there are, there are also intrinsic ones that just relate to the fact that it's seen as socially unjust that, that you need go no further than simply observing the degree of inequality uh, to say that there is a that there is a problem here. So that that's a whole other bunch of arguments that we haven't really gone into this evening. Okay.
4: I can say something. Okay. I think just something about the specific problems to do with wealth, and I mean we could stay here all night and. <coughs> a lot longer talking about that but I think there is one thing for me that is quite key and important in that is that I've been doing uh, recently some work in a society that is um, a lot more equal than the UK and the thing that I found that is fundamentally most different is this idea that the other is like you as opposed to what allows us to walk past the strand and have homeless people there and just simply walk past, is the fact that fundamentally we don't really, really think that they're the same as us because otherwise it wouldn't be possible. If I thought they were exactly the same as my daughter, I would stop and help, and yet we keep going. If we thought that the lives of refugees who drown in the med were actually really, really as important as ours, we'd do something. But we don't. So I think, for me, the real problem with wealth and high, high levels of inequality is that it allows us to see others as not like us and in more equal societies there is a much higher degree of reciprocity that is predicated upon this idea that what I'm doing for somebody else is not charity is reciprocal is well I'll help you today because tomorrow you might help me when I need it that for me is one of the key points
3: yeah, I would
5: agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's, I don't know. That's, that's fine. Yeah, I'm sort of slightly <laughs> struggling with the, with the nature of that question in terms of, it. it um, and maybe we should talk about this afterwards, I find it hard to um, sort of po- put a positive spin on these schools just for the sake of it. Um, I think it, it, a little bit is sort of, the positive spin can be a sort of sense of, You know what we may have if, if there was um, a system where those sorts of starting advantages didn't skew the system in the way that they did. um, I don't think that narrative would necessarily work with those schools either. So perhaps we can talk a bit more about what you mean by creating a positive narrative.
0: Okay, now is the time when we see if the panel about the bonus, the (laughs) performance bonus. (laughs) I get you to do that. The same quiz you did at the beginning. which was, if Emma brings it, you going to bring it up, Emma? Yep. The question is, after hear, hearing from our panel, which is the bigger social problem, poverty or richness? And you can't, as you can see, you can't choose both. Or, <coughs> um, so give you a one minute to press on your iPads and um, your phones. <laughs> and we'll see if it's shifted. OK, I think we're ready to have a result. Let's see what the result is. Well. Oh. Definitely worth a glass of wine. <laughs> 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 so can I, can I thank all of you for coming, and can I thank our, our panel and Katerina and Emma at the back for helping run the right organise day. Thank you.